1: Former NBA player and now current podcast king, Stephen Jackson, he went cop chasing this week. He visited O'Block, a notorious gang infested area in Chicago, home of Parkway Gardens. Uh, it's home of Chief Keef the Rapper. Uh, it's known as one of the most violent places in Chicago. S- yeah, Stephen Jackson hung out there, hung out with the black disciples. Uh, but wait for it. I'm actually going to tell you today why black gangs matter, and I don't have a real strong problem with Steven Jackson clout chasing. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. It is an awesome, great Hump Day, and we have an awesome, great show uh, planned for you today. Uh, Royce White is going to be here, and he's going to help me talk about uh, that fire I just lit, and it's just smoldering, and I'm going to fan the flames, and I'm going to bring Royce White in, and we're going to talk a little bit more about why black gangs matter. Shamika Michelle is going to be here. She's going to help me make it make sense. Uh, There's a video of a woman talking about why... Everybody else needs to shut up or black woman talking about why all all white people need to shut up. She's going to help me make it make sense with that video. Stick, stick around, wait for that. Of course, today is Wednesday. That means Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker uh, will be here and we'll have a special visitor uh, for Tennessee Harmony because Bobby's going to be out. We're going to go to Ron Tucker. Uh, a minister in St. Louis. He's actually T.J. Moe's minister. He's going to help us talk about what role should churches and ministers and congregations play in this current culture war. Uh, This is kind of a spinoff of the conversation about Roe v. Wade and whether or not this is a political issue that the church should avoid, or should the church be right in the mix of this. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 particularly verse 5 in that Tennessee Harmony segment and Anthony will help me break down uh, Tyler Lockett Tyler Lockett the Seattle Seahawks wide receiver We had an interesting exchange over the weekend about Roe v. Wade and about the worship of women and about the whole pro-choice, pro-life deal and where Christians should be on that. We had an interesting exchange over Twitter. I'll get to Anthony's uh, thoughts about what is a Christian's duty? Is it to love or is it to obey? Uh, so a great Tennessee harmony. Uh, but let's let's get right to it. I wanna uh, set the context for the conversation I'm about to have with Royce and I'm really looking forward to it because Royce and I uh, kind of got into this uh, last night. Uh, while I, was dri- while I was driving to dinner and I think uh, there's the foundation for a really good discussion here. Uh, Steven Jackson, uh, the former NBA player, NBA champion with the San Antonio Spurs, former Indiana Pacers. I don't know if you guys remember he's a guy that shot his gun outside of a strip club in Indianapolis. He was a part of the malice in the palace, the brawl between the Pistons and the Pacers. A, a kind of notorious NBA player. Steven Jackson is from, I believe, Houston, Texas. Uh, he's definitely from somewhere in Texas, comes from a very tough background. I actually know Steven Jackson or knew Steven Jackson. We worked together. He used to appear regularly on, on my uh, Speak for Yourself TV show on Fox Sports. And, and I gotta be honest with you, I like and liked Steven Jackson. You know, we definitely have different outlooks on life, different philosophies. Uh, That guy definitely loves weed. Uh, And you know, I'm not a drug user. But I got Steven Jackson in in terms of his background and why he thought the way he did. And for the most part, I think Steven Jackson is trying as best he can to be a force for good. Uh, This week, there was a video that he put out over social media uh, of himself uh, on O Block, this very notorious crime-ridden area, gang-ridden area in Chicago. It's, you know, it's about since 2010, 2011, been known as one of the most notorious places to live, Parkway Gardens, uh, low-income housing there. Anyway, he put out this video of himself Hanging out at O Block. Let's take a look. Yeah, a lot of y'all be at O'Block Block, pulling up, taking pictures. Where we at?
2: how they coming. We in the middle of it. I mean, y'all pull up and take pictures, and y'all not allowed to. And one thing about it, if you're a real one, you don't mind checking in. Checking in.
3: What you
2: say? I check. I check in with the real one. That's why I'm. In, that's why I'm in the middle of O Block. Where you at? You see the hoop? Where you at? I'm in the middle of O Block. Uh, yeah. yeah. Me. Listen the man. Bitch, what a what a people be, you know what I'm saying? What a real no, people's no, be, man. No, no, no. Shit, you cap, right? no you Shit you can't pay for. No rap cap. Shit you can't pay for. Me. We really out here old block, Shautown. Rest in Peace King Von. We in the middle of
3: old
2: block, ain't we? Oh bro, man. I'm everywhere, you never there.
1: So that's Steven Jackson, former NBA player. Uh I think still appears on Fox Sports, maybe occasionally appears. On ESPN as well host of his own podcast along with he and Matt Barnes called all the smoke which is uh, very popular Uh, Steven Jackson if you guys remember he and Kwame Brown uh, got into that long beef uh, almost a year ago I I, I believe Uh, Steven Jackson is being authentic is because again Steven Jackson is from gang culture, and he has never hidden that. He, he's never hidden how brutal his childhood and growing up was, and who were the guys that supported him and embraced him in childhood when he had nothing, and he feels a great affinity and loyalty uh, to those guys. And so w- when I say I knew Steven Jackson, liked Steven Jackson, liked, Steve, liked Steven Jackson, I've socialized with Stephen. I, uh, I took Stephen Jackson to dinner in L.A. once with uh, a guy that <clears throat> I'm very close to named Rock Johnson. Rock Johnson is one of Jim Brown's right-hand guys. Uh, Rock was a guy that <clears throat> probably did 30 years in the, in the pen, 20 to 30 years in the pen. Uh, came out, adopted Jim Brown's. America I can program and philosophy and Can't say that rock walked away from his gang affiliation because I think after you spent 20 30 years in prison I don't think you can just walk away from it But he certainly adopted a different lifestyle and approach and rock is a very uh, well-known person in California and uh, in, in the Jim Brown America I Can program and with people from the gang side of life in California. I took Steven Jackson to dinner with Rock once and those guys hit it off. There was a natural affinity uh, because again, they both in their youth uh, and throughout part of their adulthood have been connected uh, to the gang world and the gang culture. And so look, my instant Thoughts when seeing that video. It's like, Stephen. what are you doing, man? What, you know, you, it looks like you're clout chasing. It looks like you're bragging about, hey, I'm somewhere the rest of y'all would be too afraid to go, and I'm hanging out, and I got all this money, and I got jewelry on, and I'm this popular guy, and I've made millions of dollars, but I'm still a real one, and I can come down and hang out with the black disciples uh, on O'Block. And it just, it comes off as clout chasing, it's like, hey, Steven, are you a rapper? Are you you a little kid or whatever? But that is who Steven Jackson authentically is. And I, I think that some of us make a mistake, and again, I don't agree with Steven's approach, but I don't believe in distancing myself from the people at the bottom of America's society, the most vulnerable people in American society. I don't think we can just walk away from those guys and ignore them and hope that they go away. I think it's important to remain connected and hopeful and try to bring a positive message to those people. And so that's why I can't sit here and just light into Steven Jackson because the rest of us, we don't think those lives matter. We don't think it's important to stay connected to them and to be a ray of hope and light and perhaps a guide out of the darkness. We have ignored them. The left basically benefits off of their misery. The right out of fear, just avoids them and ignores them. And then so it's left to people like Louis Farrakhan uh, or Jim Brown or Stephen Jackson to connect with them. And, and I say those three names and, and I don't put them all in the same light. Jim Brown and his connection to the California gang community is very holistic and very appropriate, and he's trying his AmeriCan program for many years, trying to be a light unto those guys and unto the world, that these people, Rock Johnson, others, are very salvageable and need to be salvaged if we ever want America to live up to all of its best ideals. And so I look and see someone like Jim Brown, who I've been friends with, for 20, 30 years, and I look at the way the establishment, the establishment, the political establishment, both right and left, ignored Jim Brown. Barack Obama would never meet with Jim Brown. Who did meet with Jim Brown? Donald Trump. He's not an establishment politician. He looked at Jim Brown, and saw an opportunity and saw a guy willing to get his hands dirty and build a program that actually helps uplift guys that are from O Block or wherever they're at, whatever gang connections they have, and Donald Trump offered a helping hand and assistance for Jim Brown and his program and, and trying to do something about that. The rest of the establishment, right and left, this isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is about politicians and they're exploitive. How they're not really interested in solving problems. They're interested in benefiting from problems. And so I look at the establishment, wouldn't touch Jim Brown, Donald Trump and the MAGA movement would. I look at Louis Farrakhan and He's clearly a heretic as it comes to religion. He's clearly a very flawed person, but he was he's clearly, he and that organization, the Nation of Islam, have been clearly dedicated to trying to reach the guys from O-Block, the guys immersed in gang culture, and try to steer them a better direction. But now, Louis Farrakhan, Nation of Islam, their influence has been greatly diminished because even though it's, it's uh, an illogical, it's a heretic religion. It is a religion though. And since this whole country is moving against religion, Lewis Farrakhan, Nation Islam, their influence has been diminished. And so if you won't support uh, a Jim Brown whose AmeriCan i can program is as patriotic as it can be if the establishment, left and right, Republican and Democrat, won't support a Jim Brown. Everybody uh, demonized and was afraid of Louis Farrakhan because of the anti-Semitism that's attached to his religion, uh, the, the racial idolatry that's attached to his religion. I get it, but he was at least trying to do the work with some of our most... Disadvantaged people and yes, I know there's a lot of corruption to the Nation of Islam and, and you know some sub- money and all these Organizations, but they actually were doing the work and we wouldn't support them And so how can I sit here today and say I don't like Stephen Jackson's approach? I don't like the clout chasing. I don't like the glorification of it, but at least he's willing to go down and engage and interact with these people. Are we, and I'm talking about Christians, are we willing to do that kind of outreach and try to steer these guys in a better direction? I think there's some upside to doing that. And that's why I say black gangs actually matter. And if we were really interested in Healing, fixing the problems that we all sit around and talk about. We all love to sit around, oh, what about Chicago? And we love to do the whole thing about the violence in Chicago. But are we willing to actually do the work to heal those communities? Because if there is no connection, there will be no healing. If, if, if we're not willing to take the risk, of engaging with those people, moving beyond our fear and engaging with those people, there will be no healing. So that's the setup, the context for a conversation I wanna have with uh, Royce White. Uh, Royce, uh, I wanna bring you in uh, to the discussion and I will just start with a real easy uh, question. When you first saw the video of Steven Jackson, what were your initial thoughts?
0: Well, first and foremost, I have to full disclosure, Steven Jackson is a colleague of mine and a friend of mine in the Big Three. He's a coach, he was a player in years past, but he's now a coach for the trilogy. And I was just with Steven Jackson in Chicago over this weekend and I hadn't had the chance to see the video uh, until it was sent to me. And um, I, I wanna try and frame my position very, very precisely uh because a lot of times i dive right into the nuance of a a conversation and and I, i think i leave out very important pieces that help people understand where it is i'm coming from um number one the black on black crime issue uh the black on black violence issue the gang culture in black america the gang culture in chicago is a tragedy that's first and foremost it's a tragedy and it's something that somebody has to be committed to trying to fix. And, and on face value, I think that Steven Jackson's heart is in the right place, and he's somebody who comes from the streets. Similar to me, I come from gang culture as well, so I, I understand uh, the, the sentiment towards those communities that are afflicted with those, with those troubling, tragic circumstances uh, ongoing in our country. But before I, before I talk about the gang culture, I wanna say that where I, I am now personally, politically, spiritually, um, in terms of my view on community, we cannot negate individual responsibility. We We can never allow the individual, we can never allow ourselves to create excuses for the individual that robs the individual of their agency. That's what Christianity is about and that's what America is about. We place a premium on the individual. You as an individual have a responsibility and duty in your relation to God, family, community, and country. And, and, and if you can hear the sound of my voice, young black men, young black women, young people of any race, gender, creed, you have a duty to behave close as close to God as, as possible. So that's my personal opinion on individual responsibility. However, I would be remiss as somebody who is running for a congressional seat, who's running uh, to be elected, to represent people if I didn't acknowledge that culture does have an impact on individuals. And we on the conservative side agree with this. This is why we don't want LGBTQism taught to our preschoolers, because we understand that that systems and culture do have an impact on individuals, not to negate the the individual uh, responsibility, but to acknowledge that culture does have an impact. And as somebody who's running for Congress on the Republican ticket, I would also be remiss not to acknowledge and inform our audience that at one point in time in this country, the political establishment, the permanent political class was more interested in was more afraid of, let's say, black political organization than they were uh, a spillout or explosion of black on black violence as a consequence of absent black fathers or black leaders. And where gang culture is specifically in America today, especially a place like Chicago, is a result of the security state, the administrative state, the deep state, being more afraid of black political organization that's competent, spiritual based, philosophically based uh, than they were of black people killing each other, young black men killing each other, or or um, black fathers being there to hold together black families or black leaders being there for the overall spiritual leadership of the community. And we know that the security state and the deep state had a hand in killing Martin Luther King, let's say. And we know they had a hand in killing Malcolm X. We know they had a hand in killing Fred Hampton, and they tried to subvert many other civil rights movements in the black community that would have kept the explosion of militant black gangs down somewhat, I believe. I believe that in the 70s and the 80s, um, the black gangs that sprung off of the civil rights movement had a very militant component to them because our spiritual leaders were killed. And when your spiritual leaders are killed, many people lose faith. That's another consequence of condition of of culture on individuals. You could also say that the Jews, a lot of people say we won World War II. I feel we lost World War II because a lot of people lost their faith in God, especially the Jews, uh, which is why there's a secular humanist Jewish movement that's proliferated around the world today. But the same thing happened in the black community after the civil rights movement. So all of these gangs in Chicago, the Gangster Disciples, the black Disciples, the Vice Lords, the black P-Stone Rangers, uh, Larry Hoover, uh, David Barksdale, Jeff Ford, and and the list goes on and on. These people were flawed leaders, but they still had a sense of community, although it was tied into a, a criminal element that had emerged from drugs and whatnot it still had a sense of structure and hierarchy and then the security state went in again and pulled those leaders out and what we were left with is a vacuum of young misguided um, young misguided anger and radical materialism that is the gang culture today of young 14 15 16 17 year olds who have automatic weapons and they kill each other over ego and pride and jealousy and and things that are that are much less convicted around any type of community ideas. That's my framework to start.
1: Got you. And so my, uh, my thoughts listening to you and just further clarifying my thoughts, and it may be somewhat of a repeat, but again, I look at Steven Jackson there and, and say, okay, not the approach I would take if there. However, He is there and I'm not. And I don't see other Christians running in there to try to fit. And and I know some of the excuses like, well, black people have gone so secular. They would be hostile to our message. But that should not stop us as Christians from delivering our message, because we should the power of the gospel will overcome that. And the power of uh, modeling Christ-like behavior will overcome that hostility towards uh, Christianity and this whole secular worldview and hedonistic and materialistic worldview that has taken hold. And, and so I, 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 I look at Steven Jackson and that video and him clout chasing that way. That's a failure on our part. And 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 then I would, to make it political, I would say for for evangelical political conservatives, we've missed a great opportunity because uh, uh, hip hop and in that area, old block, Chief Keef, the King Von, Little Dirk. It's, it's known for producing hip-hop artists. And, and hip-hop, if you actually listen and understand the values, what values there are being expressed in hip-hop, and again, there's a lot of negative ones being expressed, but there's also some conservative values. It's not a pity party. It's not... Hip-hop certainly believes in the Second Amendment, uh, they're not looking for government handouts. They're not writing songs about what the government should do. They're writing songs about what they're willing to do to liberate themselves and take care of their families and, yeah. and, and whatnot. And again, there's a lot of negative. But yeah. if you really listen, there are some consistent conservative values. And so there's an energy and a, and a synergy between hip hop and the conservative movement, we've been so repulsed by the profanity and the the pornography and, and just the crude expressions that we're missing the opportunity that if we perhaps got involved, we could reshape, recenter, redirect the music a more positive direction because the values are actually somewhat aligned with conservative values but the left wants a very feminized black man and the right wants a very assimilated black man. And so there's a fear of the Jim Browns of the Royce whites. And that's where I have to give Trump and the MAGA movement credit. They don't have that fear. They're just looking for shared values.
0: No, I, I agree with you 100%, uh, and I'll take it a step further. I don't know that the conservative, the, 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 um, the failure to go into these communities is not by accident, let's say that. And I would even go so far as to say that many of these young black gangs are much closer to the real idea of Americanism, let's say, Uh, than most people who work nine to five jobs. And I know most people in our audience work nine to five jobs and they're gonna look and say, what do you mean that these criminals are closer to the idea of America than I am? And and this is why when I was in Chicago this weekend, I wore a t-shirt at the game that said free Ford, free Hoover, which is in reference to Jeff Ford and Larry Hoover, uh, who were the leaders who started those two games. Not because I agree with all the methods and philosophies of Jeff Ford and Larry Hoover, but because I understand there's a common enemy that most common people have not yet identified. And that common enemy are the people who keep necessary information from us consciously. And the information that is kept from your everyday nine to five working class American consciously is that it was never for the government to secure their freedom. And, and, and those, those black young gangs in Chicago may be extremely misguided they may be extremely uh, spiritually uh, uh, you know, off the mark. They may be lacking in faith. They may be radical materialists. But one thing you can say about them that is clear, there are ideas and beliefs that they are willing to die for and kill for. And that's what this country was founded on. And slowly as the industrial, uh, this industrial era and this technological era has continued to grow, all American citizens, by and large, have gotten away from having ideas and values that we are willing to both die for and kill for. We want a society that is so that is so um, well laid out for us by the government, by the establishment, by the system, that we would never have to make a decision to die or kill for something we believe in. And we like it that way. And, and so most nine-to-five people who go to work a job, again, like I said before on, on, on a show that we, a few weeks back, they want to believe that the Barack Obamas, that the Mitchell McConnells, that the Joe Bidens, that the uh, Merrick Garlands are competent, that they're benevolent, that they're experts, that they know what they're doing and they have good intentions. Why? so they can continue to pursue their own selfish ambitions with very low responsibility for their immediate community and jerk off and get high. And that's what America has become. We've become a jerk off culture. And not to say that the young black men in Chicago aren't, aren't pursuing some of the same personal selfish interests, but they have things, beliefs, ideas that they are willing to die for. They are extremely misguided. In the application of, of that willingness to kill and die and and the the um, failure for America to address those people and bring them into a better philosophical position is not by accident at all. That's why you ban a minister, Louis Farrakhan. It's not by accident that they ban Minister Louis Farrakhan and Alex Jones. Right. Or Steve Bannon or Donald Trump. I mean, you're seeing two sides of a paradigm of groups of people that otherwise would never really come together and have any traction, but there is a common enemy, and the common enemy is the uniparty, it's the, the security state, it's the establishment, it's the status quo, the centrist, the pur- the purveyors of the corrupt status quo. So you, you mentioned
1: the thing about a common enemy, and, and I want to pounce on that because this is where I think the opportunity is being missed. The common enemy to me is a mindset that has been pushed and shoved down the throats of virtually all Americans. It's most acute with poor black people. But the mindset is you're a victim. You have no agency and we've created a culture and a society where everybody's looking for their victimhood and everybody's willing to say, I have no agency, it's not my fault, it's not, and so I don't see that mentality in gang culture and and I'm, I'm not trying to defend gang culture, I want to, neither Royce nor I are trying to defend that, but I'm trying to tell you there's a mindset that we have some synergy with these folks. And it's very important. The enemy of America is this mindset that everything in America is about oppression and you being a victim. That's what to me is undermining all of this and promoting all of this American chaos. And it's why uh, you know th- these guys are out protesting in the streets, whining and complaining, I'm a victim, and I'm this, and I'm that, and I wasn't treated right. That mindset is not there within gang members. It's not, and I'll never apologize for going to the Million Man March. I'll never hide from the fact that in college, uh, I used to get regular shipments of uh, Louis Farrakhan speeches and tapes. And it's all because my mindset was, I'm not a victim. And that was passed on to me from my father and my mother. We go out here and get, and and I, I knew, the parts of Farrakhan's ministry that were total BS and corrupt. But what attracted me was the mindset of, I'm not a victim. I'm actually responsible for my own life. I'm actually responsible for my family's success. I'm I'm responsible for me. Once you adopt that mindset, it will take you down a path that will make you appreciative of this country and supportive of the founding documents and the system we have in place. And so again, that's where I'm saying this is important. It's the first step. Once you capture the mind, and we'll get into this later with the ministers uh, during Tennessee Harmony, and we'll get into it, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse five. Once you capture the mindset and make, that's how you can make it obedient to Christ and a Christ-like path. And, and so it's some dirty work that needs to be done. It's not for the scared. It's not for the people that, uh, oh, my God, I got to wear a mask and I'm going to stay in the house because COVID might get me. You're too weak for this battle and, and the work that needs to be done. And again, I'll go back to Stephen Jackson. I'm not going to diss this man because he's not scared. And he's willing to go down there and engage with people that he relates to and uh, wants to see do better. He doesn't know how to tell him to do better, but he wants to see him. But at least he's not scared, at least he doesn't see himself as a victim. And so you have a chance with guys like Steven Jackson and the kids and the misguided people he was with in Chicago, those young men have a chance to have their minds open and start the path down a journey that will help heal this country and lead us a better direction.
0: Well, well I, I agree 100% with all of that. Um, somebody has to be doing, willing to do the work. Somebody has to be willing to go to, play, to the places where many of us don't wanna go. We have no interest in going. That's the ministry of truth into into the belly of the beast. And, and hats off to Steven Jackson for doing that. I can tell you one thing for sure. Many of these Democrats who use, and Republicans, many of these politicians, or public figures in general, woke corporations, who use the circumstance of these communities for political, social, capital, uh, they don't go to these places. Barack Obama wouldn't be caught dead in that place, uh, bringing any message of any sort. Um, but but I want to get more specific on who the enemy is because I agree, in, in, in a sense, it's the, the mindset. But let's get more specific. All of these black gangs, all organized crime has taken its cue from the United States government. Let's not be confused about that. And as somebody who's running for office, I have to say that in full transparency. And that's what most of these, that, that's how you can tell a uniparty establishment chill politician from one who really comes from the people because the ones who work for the establishment the centrist status quo establishment politicians, they'll never bring that condemnation on our government. The United States government is a transnational criminal organization. The CCP that we are aligned with economically is a transnational criminal organization. They just have a right to kill because they write the laws because they own the land and they believe they own the people. But what these criminals have decided or criminal organizations, going all the way back to bootlegging, is we're not gonna play by a game that has a corrupt set of rules. We'll leave that to the nine to five people who just wanna get high and jerk off. You guys play by their rules, we're not going to. And I'm not saying I agree with that because your moral responsibility as a human being and an individual is to God first and not the fleshly. But if we're going to talk about the fleshly circumstance, we have to, I don't care if you're two black kids killing each other on the south side of Chicago, if you're a young white woman in rural Kentucky who believes that she shouldn't have a kid to pursue a a, a law degree and become a a lawyer at some big firm. If you are a a doctor who's, who's pushing drugs from big pharma, that that you don't necessarily know the, the ramifications of. Or if you're a military general or, or chief uh joint chief staff that decides it's okay to bomb some kids in Somalia. It's all predicated around one central failure of man, and it's the loss of sanctity of life. And this ties directly into abortion. And 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 I'll show you how this. Military, industrial, complex, establishment, politician thing really plays out and and sets a precedent for the loss of sanctity of life. We make the claim, just like we do in black communities around the world, that the violence of others justifies us coming into their immediate community, um, overlooking their sovereignty taking over that place, and then pirating the resources. Look at Saddam Hussein. Look at Muammar Gaddafi. These are not people that I necessarily agree with on everything that they said. Most of the things I would disagree with politically. But what I know to be a fact, and this is the common enemy that I'm trying to speak of, we commissioned Saddam Hussein to re-stabilize Iraq by any means necessary we gave him the support financially we gave him the green light to kill as he needed to 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 stabilize iraq for us because we had interest there the american government had interest in iraq and then afterward when saddam got a little too big for his britches and decided he wanted to push back on the united states government or the security state They used the murder they had sanctioned to go in and justify killing him and then further going on to kill a million Iraqis in the name of having democracy in Iraq. And what did we get? We got ISIS. You you see what I'm saying? And the same thing is true for Muammar Gaddafi. Barack Obama sanctioned the killing of Muammar Gaddafi based on what some of were lies, but some probably true, he was a dictator as well, was probably harsh on, on his people in certain circumstances. No different than the American government. We kill people in the interest of, of solidifying and maintaining our power. Hillary Clinton has a, a long list of bodies on her, on her, on her brochure, surely. All of this is about a moral relativism, relativism that the system uses to push itself forward and justify its immorality when it feels necessary. And this is the real claim around systemic injustice that the left has hijacked and used to undermine the idea of America wholesale. And this is where the nuance of conversations become critical because I'm not saying that the idea of America as a whole is invalid. What I'm saying is that we have yet to see an American government in modern times that has properly properly applied America's foundational values to the way we operate here domestically and around the world. And that's a crisis of leadership. And that's why I'm running for Congress.
1: And that's why uh, I have you on the show. You give me a lot to think about. My head is, is pounding right now. I got to take a little break, take care of some business. We'll come back with an approval rating. Don't go anywhere and come back with an approval rating on Stephen Jackson. Uh, the Fourth of July is almost here and I'm excited. I'm going home. Visit some family and friends in Indianapolis and Cincinnati. Uh, Go get your fireworks and celebrate an American holiday with 100% American meat. It's easy to get good fireworks. There's a vendor on every corner. Getting high quality American meat isn't as easy. That's why me and my family are going to be eating that Good Ranchers. Over 85% of grass-fed beef you find in stores is imported overseas. No, this Independence Day, be like me, Joyce Whitlock, my brother, Jim, my sister, Yo-Yo. Uh, we're going to grill up 100% American prime ribeye from Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers is an award-winning subscription company that delivers American meat to your door. They sell steakhouse quality beef, chicken, and seafood that's superior to what you're buying at the grocery store. Right now, Good Ranchers is putting the free in freedom with two free prime buys with every order that uses my code FEARLESS. You can do a one-time purchase to try it out or subscribe and get $25 off every box for the life of your subscription. It's an amazing product delivered right to your door every four, six, or eight weeks. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless or use my code fearless at checkout to get your two free 18 ounce ribeyes. Shop Good Ranchers today. It's American meat delivered. Be a good soldier, get your Good Ranchers. All right, let's go to our approval rating. Mm. All right, this will be very interesting here. Uh, Royce has already stated he's a good friend and a colleague, a peer of Stephen Jackson. He's maybe in a little tougher spot than me, but I like Stephen Jackson. I even know he's probably upset with me because I don't Becky with the good hair. Matt Barnes is upset with me. Uh, uh, job performance—he's a big three basketball player. He's got a very successful uh, podcast. Uh, I'll give Stephen Jackson a 17 in job performance.
0: I gave him a 21, and again, all of my scores may be biased because Steven Jackson's my boy and my colleague. But, um, you know, I like the podcast. Me, myself, personally, I don't smoke marijuana. That's not a part of my life. Um, but, but, but I understand what they're doing with that podcast, and a lot of basketball players were restricted from being able to smoke marijuana and got penalized and suspended and fined for marijuana. So I think the, the marijuana being a central piece of their very, very successful podcast is due to the fact that they can draw a lot of players in uh, uh, who have that common that common hobby, and, and a lot of a lot of basketball players do smoke marijuana. So,
1: yeah, that's not a good thing, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, character, uh, we'll probably disagree here uh, significantly. Uh, you know, Steven Jackson reminds me of of me when I was twenty five. Uh, so when I was twenty five, I'd rate my character an eight. Steven Jackson's probably forty-five, but he's got my twenty-five-year-old character. So I've I've got him at an eight in character.
0: I gave him a twenty-five. I mean, I, I don't know what we're seeing different here. Um, no, you know what? You, uh, you know the first the first time I really even knew of Steven Jackson um, was the Malice in the Palace incident. And despite all of the flaws in his character, what I did like about the Malice in the Palace is that he was willing to go in and defend his teammate. He's a, he, from what I can tell, he's a foxhole guy. And and we are in dangerous times, we're at war, and I like foxhole guys.
1: He's definitely a foxhole guy. You would definitely want him on your side in any fight. Uh, authenticity, this is where we agree. Man, he wears it on his sleeve. Steven Jackson is who he is. That video we showed earlier, that's who Steven Jackson is. Love him or hate him. That's who he is, 25
0: in authenticity. I had, I had him at a 25 as well. And again, I know him personally, And at, you know, he, out of all of the guys who we work with in the big three or who I work with or play with have met, a lot of these guys I didn't get a chance to meet when I was playing because of my problems with the NBA. Um, but, but Steven Jackson is as down to earth and as approachable as anybody in our league, especially for somebody who has had the success that he had and is still having. You know, I pull up to the hotel in Chicago last week and he's standing right out front, talking to fans, talking to people, they're coming up to him. He's still got his big diamond chains on and and, you know, he's just an approachable guy and and, uh, and his wife is also from Minnesota, so he gets extra points on that from me as well. Oh, I
1: did not know that. Uh, It factor, uh, look man, all the smoke thing is working. Uh, He has, definitely has from all that authenticity comes a natural charisma. Uh, I gave him a 19 in it factor.
0: I believe I gave him a 21 or a 22. I'm I'm not sure, okay, 21. 21. Um, pe- people forget how good of a basketball player he was. And, and me first and foremost as an athlete, I, I really respect how good of a basketball player he was. He was very talented, but he was also very fundamentally sound. Uh, and, you know, he had his problems in the league, but he was able to bounce back from those in grand fashion. And anytime you can come back from a public excoriation that like Steven Jackson has, it takes talent and it takes a, a factor in my opinion. So I gave him a 21.
1: Steven Jackson had Hall of Fame talent. He he had as much talent as anybody six seven six eight in the league, he had Hall of Fame talent. Uh, I've got him at a grease fire, a 69. Oh, I didn't even do that on purpose Uh, you've got him at blazing hot no that yeah blazing hot 92 Uh, you can't get in a better category than that Uh, thank you Royce great job as always Uh, I think you know what I'm gonna take care of a little more business before we get to uh, Shamika Michelle Uh, feeling a little less like your old self talk about how getting older has changed your body that's what all I do last night I was talking about last night with little aches and pains and all that. That's what we we all do. It's not your fault. As men, our bodies age naturally and we lose free testosterone naturally. It happens to every man and can make it more difficult to stay in shape and be the energetic, active person you've always been. Maybe you don't have time to work out, but want the energy and body you once had. Wouldn't it be nice to have that energy to counter the negative physical effects of aging. Nugenics, Total T Testosterone Booster, contains Testofen, which has been validated in five clinical studies shown to boost free testosterone levels in men. Because Nugenics total boosts free testosterone that the aging process robs you of, you'll feel stronger, leaner, with more energy and drive, and more passion too your partner will notice the difference. Nugenics Total Tea is the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC, and can help re-energize your life to help you get back to the powerful, confident, good-looking warrior you used to be. Now get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total Tea when you text FEARLESS to 231231. Text now and get a bottle of Nugenics Thermo their most powerful incinerator ever with key ingredients to help you get back into shape fast Absolutely free text fearless to two three one two three one text fearless to two three one two three one All right, Shamika Michelle just around the corner. She's gonna make it make sense next All right, welcome back. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. This is my favorite uh, news segment we've added to the show. And plus, uh, Shamika's here. Uh, she's gonna help me uh, make it make sense, or she's gonna make sense of this video that I ran across over Twitter of some deranged, blue-lipped woman. I, I don't, she's got this huge nose ring. Uh, this is a crazy person. And so let's play the video. And then I'm going to ask Shamika to make it make sense.
4: So we all see what has happened with this Roe versus Wade situation. We already knew this was how it was going to go down. Dear white women, listen. Your only play in this, if you value your life, is to shut the f***. Listen exclusively to Black, Brown, and Indigenous women, femmes, and non-men. Throw every resource you have and use your privilege to back us in every way. You are a big reason why we are in this mess. From the day black, brown, and indigenous people had contact, made contact, were forced to interact with the colonizer, we have been fighting back. The freedoms we have now are because of our fight and struggle. And the reason why those freedoms are being taken away is because of you and yours. Like I said, your only play in this is to shut the entire up and put everything bet on black, bet on brown, bet on indigenous. Put everything you got behind us. Move entirely out of the way and watch us work. You owe us your life. Sings how you've put all of ours in danger.
1: Uh, Shamika, please make it make sense. (laughs) Okay. Listen.
5: (laughs) The only sense, Jason, I can make of this is this is what happens when social media gives people who used to, you know, take classes in the basement and wear a helmet, uh, a platform to look important and to seem like they're actually knowledgeable of something. That's the only sense this is. This woman claims that she is a witch, that she's a psychic that she's a healer, healing what? With all of that negative anger, healing what? Being 72 pounds overweight, at least maybe a good hundred. What are you healing? There is no sense in this. And this is one of the negative things that I feel social media has brought, you know, to the forefront is these type of people having the ability to connect with other people who have the same stinking thinking. And it's crazy to me. It makes absolutely no sense. And when she was addressing Uh, white people, Jason. Initially, I thought, because there's another video where she talks about she's gonna get the guidance from her ancestors and stand on the shoulders of her ancestors. First of all, I was thinking, I'm gonna tell my children and my grandchildren, don't conjure me up for no, no BS, for no foolishness. Once I have left this earth and I have done what I'm supposed to do in this earth realm, I'm finished. Don't try to call me back. Secondly, though, I was wondering, would your ancestors actually support this foolishness, support pushing abortion and and actually what we know as a white supremacist, uh, Margaret Sanger, implemented and started Planned Parenthood, would your ancestors actually support this? That was my initial thought jason but i'm coming to you to you now with a question and maybe you can help me understand when i was actually doing a little bit of research i came across what was called the negro planned parenthood pamphlet of 1940 and i saw where a lot of black elites actually supported margaret sanger one of them being um Well, not in 1940. In 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Margaret Sanger Award. And in his acceptance speech that his wife gave on his behalf, he praised her and likened her work to his. So now I'm at this question where I feel like, why is the message of black elites, why have they it always been kind of aligned with the idea that certain people are unfit to have children? Because we're going now with the same message. This is why they're so upset about abortion. This is why they're pushing abortion, saying, you know, it causes poverty. It's going to create single-parent families. And this is reproductive health. That was the same wording in the pamphlet in 1940. So, now I don't know whether or not her ancestors would be upset because it seems as we've allowed this type of thinking to kind of creep into the black culture, and we have been promoting and doing the work of this uh, uh, eugenics enthusiast for a long time.
1: Listen, this is why I hate elites, and 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 I know there are people, oh, Jason, you, you got all that money, and you an elite, but... My mindset's not. And I'll, more than likely, I'll die broke because I give away way too much money. Uh, but, but my mindset is not an elitist. I'm t- Again, my mindset is factory worker. That's who I grew up around. That's the people I respect the most. And I've never like the whole talented 10th thing that W.E.B. Du Bois used to push. That's offensive to me that there's this 10% of black people that are gonna lead the rest, and it's all a promotion of an elitist mindset that there's this special group of black people, special group of elites that should dictate, control, guide this other, I didn't, there was no Talented Tenth mentioned in the Bible. Believers and what they could accomplish, and so anybody who believes and is willing to follow that path I'm willing to get on board with that's the talented whatever percent that we need to get behind but yeah black elites for a long time have pushed this message that they're special and that the rest of us should just get on board with whatever they think is the right thing to do and they think the right thing to do is for poor black people to kill their babies and I disagree with that my I was my parents were poor I didn't, I don't want to, be, And you know, my parents were married when I was born, but I don't want, I'm glad my mother didn't abort me. And I can guarantee you this, she's glad she didn't abort me. Now she's living her best life. So anyway, uh, thank you, Michelle <laughs> Jamika. I got to go, run a little thank bit you. late. Uh, I got to get to Tennessee Harmony. Great job as always. Go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock, hit the notifications, hit subscribe. Tennessee Harmony. Er- All right, welcome back. Time for a little Tennessee Harmony, uh, my favorite part of the week. Uh, no Pastor Bobby Harrington today. He's off, but Pastor Anthony Walker, always here and uh, reliable. And we got a guest, T.J. Mose minister in St. Louis, Ron Tucker, uh, is joining us from St. Louis uh, via Skype. Uh, Ron, uh, welcome to Harmony. Uh, I want you to know we start any of these Harmony Discussions. uh, And so if you can put all three of us on camera, uh, Sean, we start all the uh, Tennessee Harmony Discussions with a prayer. I'll ask Anthony to uh, bless our conversation, and then we'll go from there.
2: All right, let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for this opportunity to always share in this platform to promote uh, your will, your way. Uh, and the blessings that you've given us. Father, we pray that all that we say uh, and do is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We thank you, in Jesus' name,
1: amen. All right, so we had a, uh, amen, we had a seminal or critical moment last week with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and it sparked a conversation among many of us that are believers, how should the church react to a moment this big? I was very pleased to see Dr. Tony Evans uh, put out a statement and I was disappointed to see that another minister I follow, Mike Todd, two and a half hour sermon, never touched Roe v. Wade uh, during a two and a half hour sermon on Sunday. And TJ actually sent me a clip of Ron Tucker uh, addressing this head on at church And so let's play that clip and then uh, we'll get uh, Pastor Tucker's uh, justification why he did this. I'll be honest.
3: I mean, it has been disheartening to see so many church leaders refuse to stand up and speak the truth about what is happening because it makes people uncomfortable and it messes with the bottom line. You know what that is, right? Offerings. I mean, if this doesn't change, it will be the undoing of our culture. Jesus called the church the ecclesia, the governing body that's the salt and light of society. I mean, we are here to confront evil, to preserve the culture from the rot of corruption, not sit on the sidelines and watch it decline. I mean, that's not our role. We believe in the depravity of man. We're not born good. We're born sinners in need of the grace of God. I mean, that's what Paul has been showing us in Romans one through eight. And if we don't start holding our leaders morally accountable right now, the American experiment will go away and we are to blame. I mean, that's what our founders created this on. The church has to be involved. Don't give me church separation of church and state. That was that was Jefferson telling a group of Baptists that that the state will never come in on the church. The church has to come in on the state. We have to be involved. I mean, this. I just it's a critical moment. I know I've offended some of your friends and people that you've invited here. And I've read your emails. I've watched people walk out of church as I've gone into this stuff. But I don't wanna become a state church run by a government agency called the Ministry of Truth. And that's where we're going. If we don't stand up, if we don't speak up, this is our moment. I mean, we got this little shot, this little window.
1: Ron uh, you stated your position quite clearly how did that go over with your congregation uh, are, are you afraid of losing members uh, for for you know engaging with the culture and talking about these issues well that ship sailed
3: <laughs> I, this is, I've been at this for two years now so uh, they left the ones that, that are, were offended by it uh, they used to call this Ron's rant.
1: <laughs> so so it's yeah. gone over well. It's gone over well with your congregation.
3: Oh, no. I mean, we, we lost all kinds of people over this, but I was absolutely convinced that we had to warn God's people of what was coming. Uh, we saw, you know, I saw this, very early on, uh, right after George Floyd's death, uh, when critical race theory got into our church. We're a very integrated church. We have been for 40-something years that I pastored. And then suddenly there was this edge. There was this, uh, you know, mystical thing of we're all kind of edgy with each other and afraid of each other. And I mean, we're we're a church that has loved each other and served together and has fought for unity. And when I saw this, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I, I I'm, you know, my antenna's up and then I'm starting to hear leaders saying things that I didn't recognize and I couldn't make sense of. And so I started reading voraciously, trying to figure it out. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. I mean, once you figure out what's going on, and and then it just all begins to unfold as to you know what was happening. So I had like a an encounter with the Lord during this where I had sirens going off in my head in the middle of the night and words coming to me that you've got to warn my people, you've got to speak up to this. And uh yeah, it, it cost me friends, it cost family. We had families <laughs> messes over this, but, uh, but it's starting to bear good fruits. Things are starting to turn around, uh, more joining us. But, uh, but I have to be honest with you, this has been the most disheartening, painful experience of my 50 years of ministry.
1: And when you t- are you talking about the Roe v. Wade or just the last two years of ministry?
3: The last two years of ministry, because I haven't just pointed out the Roe v. Wade thing. We've gone at it on all levels. I mean, the whole COVID debacle and the 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 lockdowns, the election. I mean, I don't think there's a sacred cow that I haven't shot. So. uh You know, I read uh, Douglas Murray's book, what was it, The Madness of Crowds, and it just all, you know, came together. This is from all sides. This is a Marxist attempt to take us down, and this is where churches have to speak up. I had read back several years back uh, Eric Metaxa's book, If You Can Keep It, which is the clearest uh, explanation of our unique republic and how— the church was intricate in it and involved in the birth of this entire nation. It was it came out of revival, and and if the church is not in revival and is not in the forefront of what's happening in the the government, corruption takes over and we're done. And so I had already been moving that way, and then to see it just in all of its little tentacles. Uh, starting to to infiltrate and starting to get in, Jesus warned us toward the end of the age that we would see lawlessness increase in this whole host of things that we're seeing one by one by one by one uh, taking place. And his command to us, when you see these things, watch and pray. He said, keep your eyes open, stay aware of what's going on, get your head out of the sand, warn each other, this is it, because because you're people are going to get offended they're going to get offended at Jesus they're going to get offended at you know the church and and within the church and so as we're you know progressing these last 2 years it's just like all hell broke loose i mean it it just came out of the woodwork we started seeing people offended at each other and and uh, so i've taken it on as a role to warn the church and uh, wait, try to get people away to what's happening.
1: Anthony, did you feel compelled
2: to address the Roe v. Wade this Sunday? You know, I've been, we've been addressing um, the whole Roe v. Wade abortion, even when the rumors began to hit, like even prior to that, uh, I was looking at uh, his uh, sermon background um, from this Sunday. He had Romans up there. When he talks about the last couple of years, uh, Paul basically uses uh, that letter uh, to the church at Rome to express how to live Christ like lives through a culture and in a culture that is so antithetical to that. So I I think that's very interesting that he did that. One of the things I did, even through these last couple of years as well, is in most of my teaching, we went through the book of Romans in the last couple of years, and we just went through the book of Hebrews as well, to address all elements of the culture. Roe v. Wade is the latest kind of iteration of one of the biggest things, But what I saw in the last couple of years is the enemy used the opportunity, the time that we were most separate from one another. We weren't uh, for a lot of churches weren't meeting regularly together. Families were distant. We weren't able to be there. And in that time, the enemy used that isolation as a time to I mean, ramp up every it's it's almost like he turned up everything that divides us, everything that tears us apart, tears us down. He turns it up during that time. And now as we come out of it, uh, as he just mentioned, we are more frustrated with one another. Everybody's on eggshells. Everybody's on this. So any issue that comes up outside of a loving uh, God, a loving church dynamic, any issue that comes up becomes extremely divisive. So uh, directly to answer your question, I did not say anything directly on Sunday's message, but in our teaching in the past week, even the last couple of weeks leading up to this and preaching, oh yeah, they, they're already, we, we were already kind of geared for what this would mean.
1: So uh, over social media, I had people debating with me whether this Roe v. Wade, is this a political issue or is it a spiritual issue? And of course, I believe it's a spiritual and, and moral issue. But someone, uh, Denise McAllister, who's been on this show, she jumped into the conversation and she talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 in particular. And I want to read that verse. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And and I think this is Paul Mm -hmm. advising and talking Mm -hmm. and explaining his philosophy. And and so I'm wondering, and I know, uh, Pastor Tucker, you were talking about Romans, but how do you interpret chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians and that particular verse as it directs us as believers what we should be doing.
3: Well, that uh, is a spiritual warfare passage and it actually starts with the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to pull down strongholds, to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is a prayer warfare statement. And Paul acknowledged, or he's acknowledging the fact that there are spiritual forces that are keeping people in blindness and spiritual deafness. And that those powers have to respond when the church prays together. And one of the things we've been doing for the last uh, decade or more is coming together for prayer against these things. There's a, a ministry in Kansas City that we're related to that has had 24 seven prayer for the last 20, almost 25 years. And and one of their major, major prayer focuses has been Roe v. Wade, has been to see this thing change. Well, you know, our spiritual weapons are powerful because there is no other explanation. There is no reason that right now we would see this thing happen. I mean, this is a God thing on steroids. So, uh, you know, the weapons of our warfare that Paul's talking about are the name of Jesus, the Bible, the Word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've been praying, we've been crying out to God to remove the blindness from people that is keeping them, I mean... there's no other explanation. I mean, you can, you can say things to people and they just can't seem to, to get it. And, and that is supernatural. And I believe that you know, this is where the church has authority. If we will pray desperate prayers, we can break these things down. We can tear down this blindness that is over the church right now. And I think that's where it starts.
1: Anthony, uh, last night, Anthony and I were out to dinner with four other ministers, and uh, one of the ministers last night uh, was talking about like, hey, the church has to recognize that we have been praying Mm -hmm. for this for Mm -hmm. a long time, and so therefore, that's why it's important that we celebrate this answer to our prayers. I found that fascinating, that Mm -hmm. part of the conversation last night.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I want to pick even up on what uh, Pastor Tucker is saying as well. You know, when Paul details this, he, he gives a analogy, an analogy that is military. You know, he says for our warfare, the war that we're really in is not a physical war. We see elements of it physically. But the war that we're in is a spiritual one. So he says how we fight it. We don't fight it physically. We fight it with different weapons. He uses more of those terms and our weapons, as he points out, uh, Christ, God's word, truth, the Holy Spirit. Our weapons are spiritual, but they are mighty in pulling down strongholds. The world that we exist in, there are some strongholds that we go up against. Think about this military uh, and this war analogy that Paul is using. We're coming up against some heavily fortified uh, uh, enemies and, and they are strongholds. And we can't come weakly. We can't come timidly. And we must use the weapons. And so prayer being a primary weapon in that When this stronghold comes down, we have to say, wow, God, you you had to do this because our efforts uh, by ourselves, we could not have done this. I I don't have any kind of philosophy or any kind of anything that could, could bring down a stronghold like this other than you, God. Now, everybody else and even to those who are defending the strongholds, They're going to use whatever language they have to, oh, this was a political, you guys only feel this way, this is hate driven, and you don't love women, and all that, you can go all down that line, but we who are engaged in a spiritual war must recognize the spiritual nature of what's taking place, and yes, give God the glory for what he's done.
1: Pastor Tucker, I'll ask you one final question or react to one final uh, comment, then we'll let you go, but... uh, for me, as, as someone, you know, much uh, earlier in my journey as a, a Christian or mature journey, I've been involved with Christianity, you know, since I was a little child, but I've lived a very secular life for a long time. And, and I've been battling gluttony and, and overweight and, and, and I wasn't able to have any success. Until I really started talking to God about it and tapping into prayer and and I look at a culture and a society That is trying to like justify and normalize being overweight They they really are and and I I was watching a sermon uh, I think it was Tony Evans that talked about you know how you're really in trouble is when you Make your sin part of your identity, mm-hmm. and 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 he pointed, and it made me think. Because anytime I'm listening to a sermon, I'm applying everything to me. And you know, my nickname for years, everybody in this business for thirty years has called me Big Sexy. Wow, big. And I, I was proud of that. One, I came up with the nickname. It's <laughs> a big part of my identity. I've made my gluttony and the whole, and I, I have and, and fight sexual lust. I made those two things, my, my identity. Yes. And, and holy cow. And it's only been through tapping into my faith and giving it to God and constantly talking about. Because a lot of times people think I'm just doing it for humor on this show, but I, it's really just a weapon. I talk about my gluttony and my battle of the bulls just constantly, just as a reminder to stay in the fight and, 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 you know, remember to give this over to God and to tap into these, the gospel, because the, the Bible talks a lot about idolatry and I have a food idolatry. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I'm just wondering and uh, trying to use this show. And I know you guys try to use your ministry to try to take these examples and teach people how to apply it to not just the big battles, but the small battles that they're fighting as well.
3: Jason, can, can I, I just love you, man. I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. We, we actually are using clips of yours. You and Delano blew us away just pretty much on a continual basis, but, but uh, the, the lady you just had on, we showed a clip of you and her you are making a huge huge difference you have a a brilliant mind and a grasp of what is happening and as a a black man you're speaking into this in a way that that i can't right now and i'll tell you i we are so grateful for you for what god is is doing through you and your transparency i mean with just what you're saying i mean this is what the church needs to be, you know, honest about where our struggles and where we're at, and, and uh, that's how we get help. That's how the Holy Spirit begins to empower us to, br- you know, and bring change. So, uh, thank
1: you. <laughs> well, thank you for making the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope to have you back and maybe uh, I'll get up to St. Louis and uh, TJ and his wife can bring me to church.
3: Oh, we would love that,
1: man. We would love that. All right. Well, thank you, Pastor Tucker. Uh, Anthony, I want to continue the conversation because I had an exchange Mm -hmm. also with uh, Tyler Lockett, receiver for the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, I, I, I think it's his uncle, Kevin Lockett. I'm pretty sure it's his uncle, not his dad. Kevin played at Kansas State, played with the Kansas City Chiefs. I knew his uncle and had a respectful exchange because... Tyler had tweeted out uh, that Tyler identifies as a Christian, it's the only thing he lists in his Bible, doesn't say he's an NFL player, he says he's a Christian. And and I respect uh, Tyler a lot. And he tweeted out though, in, in reaction to the Roe v. Wade decision, to all women, I just wanna say I'm sorry, it's not right what this country is doing. I then replied, to him respectfully not an attack as a professional uh, as a professed christian your duty is to serve god not women i'm assuming maybe incorrectly you're talking about the overturn of roe where do you think jesus stands on abortion i'm only asking because of your bio thanks Uh, tyler responded very uh, professionally uh, but he responded with love the lord with all your heart and with all your soul, and then with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Luke chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. Then he followed up and said, our job is to love. The greatest thing God gave us on this earth is choice. And regardless of how you feel about anybody's choice in any given situation, it's their choice to make. And he lists Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 and 12. Uh, I had a reaction to it, but it's your, my reaction is irrelevant to what he said. I, I'm going to an authority in it. What do you think about Tyler's opinion or the things he expressed to me and his just our highest calling is love or your reaction?
2: Mm-hmm. So the scripture, one of the things that's very that we have to be careful with when we quote scripture. And and a lot of people like to go and grab a scripture that agrees with what they want to say in the moment. Every verse is within a context. And so we have to look at the context in which the verse is given. Uh, The passage that he quotes to you. Yes, you know, Jesus responds to a situation that he sets up. The question on the table was, who is our neighbor? And this is okay. How do we? How do we treat people? How do we deal with that? Who's our neighbor? If you say I need to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? So he tells a parable about a person who falls on rough times. Uh, You know, they're traveling, they get hijacked, they're beaten, they're left for dead. Several people come by. Uh, A priest comes by, a, a, a Christian comes by, and then a Samaritan comes by. He's answering that question. Who was the neighbor? So when he gets the answer, he tells us, OK, so here's what you have to do. Love your neighbor. Now, the question on the table, even as it relates to Roe, who is our neighbor and what is our response? Coach Tony Dungy, uh, you, you've uh, had on before, he tweets about it depends on what we see in that womb. What is that? If you say it's just some tissue, OK, you're going to respond a particular way. But if you understand that as life, and I believe that Jesus does, then that is a neighbor that we have to love. Who are we loving and how are we loving? When he tells us the greatest gift that we have is choice. And I think you responded, the greatest gift that we have is Jesus. That's the greatest (laughs) gift that God gave us. When Jesus tells us about that in John chapter three and verse number 16, he's in a discussion with a man named Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved us with the highest love he could. And that love was giving us his only begotten son, Jesus. That's the greatest gift. Do we have choices? We all do have choices. But our choices, as the Bible is replete with verses, need to align with God's will and God's intention. That doesn't take away from me not loving the child, me not loving the mother, me not loving the father. And all of us are subject to love God. God even defines love in John chapter 14. I've got this passage, John chapter 14 and verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So God is saying love what love looks like to me. And we're in a society right now. That is getting real, you know, cunning about how we define love. We define love almost like it's a airborne disease. You know, we just catch it. Love is love. You can't help who you love. It just falls on you. Love, love, love. But God says, no, this is what love looks like to me. When you keep my commandments, when you respond to others like I respond to you. How did God respond to you and I? There's grace. There's mercy. There's provision, there's salvation, there's life, there's unconditional love. And that's what these children deserve. Now, adults, we make decisions that are crazy. We make decisions that are evil. You even list. We make decisions based on our own idolatry, our own self-indulgent. But in those decisions, there's always a consequence. And so we have to understand that the consequences of our actions, especially sex, has a child in the balance. And now we say because of our decision, now we're going to make another decision because of something that we didn't do was right. And I'm only asking those who love the Lord. What does that child? What what are we saying about that child? And how does God feel about that child? And if we love God and we love that child and God loves us, then what more can we do than to provide for that?
1: Love your point about putting in context in terms of love thy neighbor mm-hmm. and then recognizing that, that, okay, that person inside that womb is your yes. neighbor. Yes. Love that. Uh, I, I I also, In listening to you explain this, I also start thinking like that Tyler Lockett, and I mean this very respectfully, I think this young Mm -hmm. man is well-intentioned and all that, but I'm looking at him fall into the trap that the culture is basically preaching and he doesn't even know it. But the argument they're really saying is that God is standing in the way of love, that the Bible and the things that it teaches... Mm -hmm. That's an impediment to love. Oh my God, the Bible is stopping two men from loving each other and getting married. Mm-hmm. And so so we have to get rid of the Bible because it's in the way of love. Right. And that's how <laughs> how we've come to this conclusion that love is just what, a, hey, I love a cat. Mm-hmm. And well, does that, should, should you sleep with him? Should you, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I don't think so. Uh, And then the the other thing that I I really want some clarity on because of the thing I said to Tyler, very respectfully, I'm telling you this is a good young man. I want him to understand And maybe I'm wrong, but I I think that our calling as Christians is to obey God Mm -hmm. more so than to love whatever we think. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, if we obey God, the love's just going to spring naturally from that. Correct, because God is love. <laughs> so, so if I <laughs> if I if I obey God and I'm
2: seeking after God and His will is way, I obey Him. I'm going to be loving, uh, as He is loving, because that's His nature. But it, it you make a very good point, and and if I can just to pull on that for a little bit, if we looked at the passage that we said earlier about strongholds. The strongholds of culture, the strongholds of worldly living are defended by lust, by pleasure, by, by all this sinful mindset. They're defending that. And the only way that we can engage in that and indulge in that is we've got to remove God out of the picture. But when we put God in the picture, no matter what goes on, how I treat Jason Whitlock, is a reflection of what I understand about God. My theology, my understanding of God, my knowledge of God informs every other ology of my life. My psychology is based on my theology, my philosophy based on my theology, my anthropology, my sociology, all of it hinges on God. So when we look at that, now if we we take a worldly view, a worldly view that says, hey, we evolved from a big bang and chemical soup and we just came into being. Then I can follow that with, oh no, that's not a child in her womb. That's just a, and whatever
1: big iteration bang. we it's give big to bang. it. Yeah. A big bang.
2: Right, right. right. Another big whatever bang. iteration we give, we say, well, no, that's not, that's, that's just a zygote. That's just some chemicals. That's just this. And we'll, we'll do that when we're here. But at the same time, we'll travel millions of miles away to Mars looking for life. Now, the kind of life you're going to find in any other planet that they're straining to find is going to be a clump of cells here or there. But we can do that over there and call that life. But in the womb, we won't call that life because we're trying to take God out of it. But when we put God back in the middle of this to say that God created man in his image, If we say that God is in the creation, if we go back and quote scripture where God tells us in Isaiah that I formed you in your mother's womb, I made you, then now I have to take a hands off approach and say, hey, God is at work in there. I got to let God do his work because of what I understand of him. But if I take him out, then we can do
1: whatever we want to do. I think I want to end on this note and respond if you'd like or we can just end. But I I want to say to Tyler, if somehow he sees this, and let's put this part of the clip out and I will tag Tyler on it. It's like, if we obey God, we will naturally love women. And so by obeying God, again, we'll be more careful with our interactions with women. Amen. And we won't be so prone to have Uh, random sex with women because we're obeying God and that's going to bring out a higher form of action and love from us towards women and we'll see our engagement with women and women will see their engagement with men as something that needs to be in obedience to God and then so once that happens and you impregnate a woman and you're obeying God your thoughts of how to love that woman and the child in her system will take abortion off the table. Amen. And so it, it, it's just, it, it, and again, I, I don't I, I don't want to be Tyler up. He's a young guy and we talked about it earlier in the week that a lot of the athletes and uh, celebrities and very wealthy people uh, want to avoid the consequences of sin and of disobedience to God. And we think that money, well, abortion, three, four, five hundred dollars, I don't know what it is, that'll fix it. Now I don't have to deal with that sin. And it really doesn't fix anything because the other thing that, that, and again, I know as a minister, you deal with this and we'll end on this note. I'll let you Mm -hmm. uh, take it from here. As ministers, now we were out to dinner last night, there are five of you all. You guys deal with the women who have abortions and deal with the scars emotionally, mentally, that take years if they ever recover from.
2: Of all the women that I know that have had an abortion, none of them come out of it unscathed. There's emotional scars, there's guilt that lives on within them. Uh, and, And of all the ones that I personally know, if they had it over again, they would go back, not just to the abortion, but to the beginning of the matter. You make a very simple case that, that the Bible does make. We're made in God's creation. Because I'm made in God's creation, I need to get to know God. I need to know his purpose and his design for his creation. Men, and I don't want to scapegoat men in this, and that's what a lot of this discussion does as well as it puts it all on women. God tells Adam, you're responsible for this world. I gave you dominion. You're responsible for this. These women are not getting pregnant by themselves. Man, I'm asking the same question that God asked, Adam, where are you? So if that man is honoring God and wants to live according to God's will and his purpose, then he's entering into a relationship and a covenant marriage with this woman If his desire is to have sex with her, if we lived according to God's will and his plan, there is no such thing as random sex or casual sex because sex is to happen in the confounds of marriage. And now when they become pregnant, this man has the duty and the God given honor to protect and provide for his wife, to protect, provide, profess for his family and provide for them. There won't be a situation where a woman has to make this decision of, well, do I pursue my career or do I take this kid? Well, no, because this career was encapsulated in this marriage that this man who's honoring God and you're honoring God with your life. You guys are striving for together. So, yes, we're going to handle this thing together according to God's will. But outside of that, we get these issues, even pain and pregnancy, pain and labor is a result of sin from the garden. So our anger and frustration does not need to be at each other. It needs to be back to the enemy and back to the sinful life. And we are saved from our sins by Jesus Christ. So, yes, those women who have had abortions, God forgives. Those men who have impregnated these women and and all of this kind of dynamic, God does have grace and forgiveness, but we must pursue continually his will and his way.
1: Uh, we can play harmony <laughs> and uh, we can get out of here. It's been a great uh, Tennessee Harmony, a great Wednesday show. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow.
3: Start in we used to be a nation, one
4: united. Now we're headed for a downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything. to tell us, cause together we're so much stronger. God, let your light shine.